going to uh, assume two conditions for this talk. The first one is just what I assume to be a recognition of fact. That is that the uh, events of uh, September 11th were a horrendous atrocity, probably the most devastating instant human toll of any crime in history outside of war. The second has to do with the goal. I'm assuming that our goal is that we're interested in uh, reducing the likelihood of uh, such crimes, whether they're against us or against someone else. If we do accept them, then a number of questions arise, closely related ones, which uh, merit a good deal of thought. Terrorism, law, and democracy. The question we really have to ask is, how repressive do we need to become in order to defeat it? Bearing in mind, of course, that you can easily overdo that sort of thing. You'll notice that the, the name of this operation, remember at first it was going to be a crusade. They backed off that because PR agents told them that wouldn't work. And then it was going to be infinite justice, but the PR agent said, wait a minute, you're sounding like your divinity, so that wouldn't work. And then it was changed to enduring freedom. We know what that means, but nobody has yet pointed out, fortunately, that there's an ambiguity there. To endure means to suffer. (laughs) And uh, there are plenty of other people around the world... (laughs) who have endured what we call freedom. (laughs) Again, fortunately, we have a very well-behaved, educated class, so nobody has yet pointed out this ambiguity. Terrorism and the rule of law, the international and Canadian reactions to the terrorist crimes of September 11th. The problem is all in perspective and inability to understand risk levels. I mean, I know smokers who worry about terrorism. We want to reduce the level of terror, certainly not escalate it. There's one easy way to do that, and therefore it's never discussed, namely stop participating in it. That would automatically reduce the level of terror enormously. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to Terrorism, Law and Democracy a documentary series examining the consequences of September 11th on Canada's legal and political system. My name is Khalid Safar. Over the next few weeks, we will explore the theme of terrorism and the rule of law in light of the international and Canadian reactions to the terrorist acts of September 11th, 2001. The first five parts of the series explore the nature of terrorism, Canada's national security history. We look at the impact of the new international campaign against terrorism on Canada's political agenda and its laws, especially Bill 36, the Anti-Terrorism Act, which came into force on December 24, 2001. As well, we'll examine the global impact of this campaign. These considerations will be followed by a six-part investigation of the consequences of the so-called war on terrorism on Canadian civil society. 
We'll look at the new developments in Canada's security establishment, the balance between civil liberties, human rights, and security, and the future for activism, globalization, and democracy in the face of this not-so-new war. Pressed against our window pane, ears glued to our telephone. Why won't they leave us alone? Dot dot did it dot dot dash. Damn if I know. CIA and FBI noses pressed against our window pane, ears glued to our telephone. Why won't they leave us alone? Dot dot did it dot dot dash. Damn if I know. Much of this series is based on the proceedings of the conference Terrorism, Law and Democracy, organized last March 25th and 26, 2002 in Montreal by the Canadian Institute for the Administration of Justice. The conference asked the question, how is Canada changing following September 11th? and provided a space for reflection on the need to maintain a balance between the protection of public security and fundamental rights, especially if September 11th turned out to be a true breaking point in the relationship that most democratic societies had maintained between imperatives of public security and the ideals of freedom promoted by the theory of fundamental human rights. I'd like to thank the CIAJ for making these audio transcripts available for rebroadcast. You can visit their website at www.ciaj-icaj.ca. For most Canadians... 9-11 was another of those vicarious crises that imposed themselves on us. A few Canadians died in the World Trade Center. Many fewer were at the Pentagon. But I think Canada's real threat came from the outraged reaction of an injured superpower. Heavily dependent on U.S. markets, Canada's economic welfare depended on proving our loyalty with words, warships, aircraft, and combat troops, and a chilling fear that somehow we had let the terrorists through. Well, it turns out, no, we didn't. Not this time, but uh, you can't be too careful. The real problem with this bill is that it's permanent, unless people force Parliament review to be effective. In the meantime, we should carefully try from various people-affected groups to try and establish the data, because I do not trust parliamentary, uh, parliamentary review processes to actually assemble the data that will show one way or the other whether this legislation is as dangerous to civil liberties as I think it is. In, in my view, in this particular case, in an extraordinarily awful event, uh, this was a complete overreaction from the Canadian Parliament, and um, it's something that will stain our criminal justice system for a long time unless there's political effort to get rid of it.
What is terrorism? Been assuming we understand it, but what is it? The theme of part one of this documentary, Terrorism, Law and Democracy, focuses on terrorism. Canadian journalist Gwyn Dyer and American scholar Noam Chomsky provide a general consideration of terrorism and a context for situating events post 9-11. What is terrorism? Been assuming we understand it, but what is it? There are two questions that concern us very much. The first one is the CIA. Who the hell runs that organization? The second one is who runs this country? Dot, dot, did it, dot, dot, damn. Damn, if I know. Brothers and sisters, thank you very much. What is terrorism? Been assuming we understand it, but what is it? Dyer is a freelance journalist, columnist, broadcaster, and lecturer on human conflict and international affairs. With an academic background in military affairs and history, he has served in three navies and has hosted several television and radio documentaries on war and politics. Gwyn Dyer spoke before the conference on terrorism, law, and democracy on March 25, 2002. This is a conference on terrorism, law, and democracy. But I think I've probably been brought here to talk about terrorism. And that's what I propose to do in a sort of context-setting exercise, if I might, because I, I do feel that, as is often the case when large and emotionally powerful events happen, we have tended to lose the plot a little bit over the past six months. Six months is all it is, six months into the war on terrorism. And after the appalling events of the 11th of September, what have we had? Well, we've had one rather pathetic shoe bomber. I would not have hired him. One person arrested who appears to have been connected with the attacks on the 9th, on the 11th of September. And that is uh, the gentleman who was arrested in August, actually, after he requested the flying instructor to train him how to fly, but never mind the takeoffs and landings, which roused suspicion. And then we've had an anthrax scare, which almost certainly had nothing to do with the perpetrators of 9-11, but rather the Timothy McVeigh view of the world. Even the U.S. government's come around to that view yet. And, of course, the casualties in that were potentially at least five dead, one large car crash. No leaders of al-Qaeda have been apprehended. One country's government has been overthrown, or a pathetic country, and allegedly we're about to embark upon overthrowing another. But that's the... I speak of Iraq, of course. And uh, that is the sum of the events of the last six months on which we have 
spent several forests worth of newsprint. Oh, plus, of course, some thousands of arrests and hundreds of detentions of people who we think might have been up to something. And Bill C-36 here, and the Patriot Act in the United States, and the Anti-Terrorism, Crime, and Security Act in Britain, all of which have similar sorts of characteristics. So I think what we need, actually, is a sense of proportion. Beginning with the fact that terrorism is a technique. It is not an ideology. It is a strategy. And you cannot make war on a technique or a strategy. What kind of technique is terrorism? Let's do a little bit of an anatomy lesson here. First of all, it comes in two forms. The techniques of terror, as a means of, how shall we put it, behavior modification, come in both state forms and non-state forms. And state-linked terror is a terrifyingly effective technique. Whether it is used by a government against its own population, by a police state, and we know many examples of that, or against foreigners by a government at war. At the risk of offending a good many people, I suppose, Bomber Command in the Second World War, made up of mostly British and Canadian crews, did one World Trade Center a night for some years with very significant impact. That's terror. The Cold War was all, all about terror. You do recall the balance of terror, I presume, in which we were going to drop 20,000 nuclear weapons on the Russians and they would reciprocate with 20,000 on our innocent citizens. So state-organized terror as a behavior modification device is very effective. The other category, which is terror carried out by non-state actors, is a much less effective technique, even at the best of times, because their resources are so much less. They can't be as terrifying. The more effective forms of non-state terror are, of course, in all, almost always in the context of national liberation movements, where you don't have to win as a terrorist, you just have to be sufficient of a nuisance and a drain on resources by the occupying imperial colonial power that eventually they decide to cut their losses and go home. You're among your own people, recruiting is easy, the targets are few and high profile of the occupying forces. It's relatively easy for non-state actors in national liberation wars to win through terror, which is why in the end Archbishop Makarios and Jomo Kenyatta both got to have tea with the Queen. And then there is the weakest form of terrorism. Terrorism against your own government or against foreign governments that are not occupying your national territory. And that's what we're up against here, is the weakest form of terrorism. From the late 19th century anarchists who assassinated numerous heads of state in Europe and in the United States, on down through the terrorists of the 60s and 70s and 80s, based most of them on the left, it has never worked.
It has never achieved its goals. With one minor exception, the international terrorism waged by the PLO between about 1967 and 1985. And the reason that succeeded because was because its aims were so extremely modest. It wasn't trying to change anybody's government. It was simply trying to rebrand the Palestinians and make us stop referring to them as refugees and talk about them as Palestinians with therefore a putative right to some territory in a country called Palestine. And once they had, through judicious use of terror and the media, achieved that goal, essentially they stopped. But apart from that, non-state terror, not against an occupying power, has a track record of no successes, whatever. Almost always those who carry it out, moreover, follow the strategy which is best known as the politique du pire. Lacking the strength to over overthrow governments themselves, their strategy is to drive governments into more repressive postures, so repressive that the population at large will turn against the government, rise in its righteous wrath and bring the government down. If you look at the kind of strategy that the Montaneros and the, the Brazilian terrorists of the 1960s, urban terrorists, Carlos Barighella, people like that had in mind, Sendero Luminoso more recently. If you look at the Brigate Rosse in Italy and the Red Army fraction in the 1980s, 70s and 80s in Germany, always their tactic was essentially that, most charmingly summed up by Herbert Marcuse, in the 60s to tear away the mask of repressive tolerance of the liberal bourgeoisie. What we do is we drive the state into more and more repressive actions which will in turn drive the population into our arms. And that is the only strategy they had available since they lacked the ability to overthrow governments themselves. Of course, in reality, while they frequently managed to make the state more repressive, and Latin America is full of examples of that, the state then crushed them, invariably. They never win. Al-Qaeda, to come to our present topic, is of this order. It's that sort of organization though it is not anarcho-syndicalist or left-wing, nevertheless, I mean, never mind the ideology, what are they up to? It is of that order. And I guess the question we really have to ask is, how repressive do we need to become in order to defeat it? Bearing in mind, of course, that you can easily overdo that sort of thing. So let me take a few moments to explain what I can about the nature and even the origins of Al-Qaeda. First of all, we are here talking, despite all the loose talk about Muslims and Islamic extremism, we're talking almost exclusively about an Arab phenomenon. Almost all the members of Al-Qaeda are Arabs, and its roots are in Arab politics, not in some broader and fuzzier Muslim politics, of which, frankly, there is virtually none. To talk about the Muslim world is as meaningful as to talk about the Catholic world. But within the Arab world, they do respond to a very widespread sense of injustice and desperation. 
which I need not go into, I presume, for this audience. We know the history. We know what a dreadful time the Arabs have had in this century past. And they feel it, certainly. And for 20 years and more, there have been Islamist revolutionary groups in most of the larger Arab countries seeking to overthrow the local governments, coming, operating under different names in the various countries, and in fact not very closely connected from the Islamic armed groups in Algeria to uh, Islamic Jihad in Egypt, Takfir Wahidra in Saudi Arabia, the Ikhwan, the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria, even Saddam Hussein has got his local Islamist rebels, the Shiite rebels, al-Dawa, trying to overthrow secular and essentially westernizing regimes, most of which are allied to the United States, by stimulating popular revolutions. And again, their problem is they can't do it themselves. They must somehow get the population to rise with them in order to overthrow governments that are generally pretty good at repression. Osama bin Laden's rather latter-day contribution to this enterprise, which has been notably unsuccessful, no Arab government has been overthrown by Islamic revolutionaries, Osama bin Laden's contribution is Al-Qaeda, which is an umbrella organization, and that is what is remarkable about it. It operates as a link between the pre-existing national Islamist revolutionary organizations in various Arab countries. Money, weapons, ideas, and people pass through Al-Qaeda from one country to another, or out of the Arab world into the wider world. And insofar as there is strategic thinking in the Islamist movement, it's mostly done in Al-Qaeda. What was the strategy behind 9-11 then? I would suggest, I'd argue quite strongly actually, that first of all it's not mindless terrorism, these folks aren't mindless, they have strategies and goals, and that the strategy for 9-11 was born out of President Clinton's response to the Al-Qaeda attacks on American embassies in East Africa in 1998, three and a half years ago. You will recall two suicide truck bombings of East African embassies, American embassies. Big bombs killed a lot of people and injured a lot more, about 240 killed, 5,000 injured in, uh, in, in uh, Nairobi and Dar. Very few American casualties, because American embassies are pretty heavily fortified places these days. Two dozen Americans were killed. Bill Clinton, who of course had a lot else on his plate at that point, responded with 75 cruise missiles. And frankly, the targeting appears to have been done by a man wearing a blindfold and holding a dark board, and holding darts. I mean, it was atrociously badly done. Many innocent people were killed, and it is possible that no members of Al-Qaeda were killed, but it, of course, it suited Mr. Clinton's purposes in the sense that CNN had pictures of munitions exploding in Middle Eastern-looking environments, and that was all he required. He had to get back to his domestic affairs. <laughs> I think that what happened, however, was that Al-Qaeda recognized an opportunity here. That if you can kill large numbers of Americans, the American response, certainly patterned if it, if it were patterned on Mr. Clinton's, will be massive, indiscriminate, and horrendous. 
that if you go to the United States and kill thousands of Americans, the American retaliation will be a hundred times what Clinton did and will kill thousands upon thousands of innocent Muslims, plus, of course, some members of Al-Qaeda, but they are, after all, allegedly ready to die. And that counter-atrocity, if it occurred, would provide the long-missing fuel to boost these failed Islamic revolutions in the various Arab countries off the ground. I mean, the script writes itself at that point. Look at your neighbors dead under their houses, killed by American bombs. Look at your pro-American government. Put two and two together, people. Follow us. I know that in many parts of the West, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, the fear was that something like that would occur, and that as a result, an important Arab government like that of Egypt or Saudi Arabia would fall. That is, I think, the strategy that we were confronted with in, in September, and in that case one must say that the United States response was nearly perfect. The United States did not put a foot wrong between September and, let us say, at least the end of the year in the sense that it did not step into the trap, it did not deliver a massive Clintonian-style <coughs> retaliation that would have played into Al-Qaeda's hands. On the contrary, for 20 days, no American soldier anywhere on the planet fired a shot in anger. The United States stopped, thought about it, saw the trap, did not walk into it. Should we give Mr. Bush personal credit for this? Out of sheer prejudice, I'm reluctant to. <laughs> <laughs> But he's certainly surrounded, very unusually for an American president, by senior advisors who know their way around the Middle East. I mean, Don Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, and Colin Powell all worked for his father during the Gulf War. They've been there many times. They've met the people. They've been briefed on Arab politics till their eyeballs spun. They're just the people you would want to see through what was going on in September. And the consequence is that the United States paused, did nothing foolish, and when it did respond, didn't attack any Arab country. It attacked the best place on the planet to attack if you have to attack somebody. And I think you have to give Al-Qaeda credit. It did create a situation where the U.S. government had to attack somebody. That far it got. The political absolute requirement after 9-11 was that the United States attack somebody if Mr. Bush is to see the new year without impeachment. But Afghanistan was the ideal target, first of all, because it was an entirely legitimate target. After all, Al-Qaeda did have its headquarters there, and the regime was too silly to hand them over. You could get international support for it. Every great power signed off on it. The Security Council authorized it. And it was going to be a short, cheap war because the Afghan regime was possibly the in most incompetent on the entire planet. And the Taliban army, the, least, the, the worst trained, worst led, worst armed in the entire region. It took the United States 10 weeks to take it down. There's a little bit of mopping up, but it's over. So down to 31st of December, not a foot wrong. I worry about the axis of evil and the idea of attacking Iraq, which would be an entirely different situation, both because attack Iraq's a harder nut to crack and because it isn't actually involved in the preceding atrocity, which will cause a significant lack of popular support elsewhere in the world. But it is entirely possible. I would, I would remind you that Mr. Bush is bluffing. He gets quite cross when you say he's bluffing. But if you are bluffing a man like Saddam Hussein, it is a requirement that you look crazy. 
And uh, you can't look crazy to him and then sort of whisper and aside to your own population that you're not. I, I'm not yet convinced we're going down that road, in which case the United States' response will have been actually beyond criticism. Meanwhile, what should we do about the terrorist threat and what should the United States domestically do about it? Well, the damage is likely to be done by overreaction. Not that the terrorists care either way, but we should care. By overreaction, not by the terrorists themselves. Terrorists are always, certainly international terrorists of the sort we're talking about, are always playing a kind of jujitsu. They are very weak and they are attempting to use our strength against us. And we must not fall into that. What we need here is a sense of proportion. The losses on the 11th of September, horrifying though they were, were only slightly bigger than the average monthly traffic fatalities in the United States at any time over the past 60 years. They were not remotely comparable to what happens in real wars as opposed to wars on terrorism. Even Canada lost a thousand killed a month during most of the Second World War. The United States lost 10,000 dead a month for four years out of a population half the present size. That's a war. Or, if you want the Russian example, a million dead a month for four years. The World Trade Center attack happened once. Nothing of that scale may ever happen again. We may never lose a thousand people to terrorism in one go again. Or perhaps we will. But it will be a thousand, not many millions. The problem is all in perspective and the inability to understand risk, risk levels. I mean, I know smokers who worry about terrorism. <laughs> And, of course, in a situation like this, you have to watch out because all the usual suspects are nosing up to the trough, eager to inflate the risk because there's some employment or profit in it for them. I won't name the categories of people, but you know what I mean. I think what we have to bear in mind is, first of all, that the very least response that makes sense is the right response in terms of our reactions to the threat, and this applies at every level, given what terrorist strategies are, given the politique du pire. And secondly, finally, actually, to remember what Georges Clemenceau once said. I won't quote him in French because I'll get it wrong, but if I can do an English translation, he said, if you believe the priests, nothing is holy. If you believe the doctors, nothing is wholesome. If you believe the soldiers, nothing is safe. That's called déformation professionnelle, and it applies to the terrorism experts too. Thank you very much.
You have been listening to Gwyn Dyer speaking about terrorism at the conference Terrorism, Law and Democracy. His remarks were recorded on March 25th, 2002. Noam Chomsky is a professor of linguistics at MIT and has published extensively on propaganda, government, media, and international politics, especially U.S. foreign policy. His work has shed light on some of the worst atrocities in the 20th century, as well as the political and economic agendas behind international affairs. Professor Chomsky has spoken and published on terrorism and the new war since September 11th. The following remarks are excerpted from the Alternative Radio's presentation of Noam Chomsky's lecture, the New War on Terrorism, Fact and Fiction, recorded on October 18th, 2001, at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm going to uh, assume two conditions for this talk. The first one is just a, what I assume to be a recognition of fact. That is that the uh, events of uh, September 11th were a um, horrendous atrocity probably the most devastating instant human toll of any crime in history outside of war. The second has to do with a goal. I'm assuming that our goal is that we're interested in uh, reducing the likelihood of uh, such crimes, whether they're against us or against someone else. If we do accept them, then a number of questions arise, closely related ones, which uh, merit a good deal of thought. Emergency, 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 emergency. Emergency, 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 emergency. What is terrorism? I've been assuming we understand it, but what is it? Well, there happen to be some easy answers to this. There is an official definition. You can find it in the U.S. Code or in U.S. Army manuals. A brief statement of it taken from a U.S. Army manual is, uh, fair enough, is that terror is the calculated use of violence or the threat of violence to attain political or religious ideological goals through intimidation, coercion, or instilling fear. That's terrorism. That's a fair enough definition. I think it's reasonable to accept that. The problem is it can't be accepted, because if you accept that, all the wrong consequences follow. Now, there is a major effort right now at the UN to try to develop a comprehensive treaty on terrorism. When Kofi Annan got the Nobel Prize, you'll notice he was reported as saying we should stop wasting time on this and really get down to it. But there's a problem. If you use the official definition of terrorism in the comprehensive treaty, you're going to get completely the wrong results. So that can't be done. In fact, it's even worse than that. If you take a look at the definition of low-intensity warfare, which is official U.S. policy, you find that it's a very close paraphrase of what I just read. In fact, low-intensity conflict is just another name for terrorism.
That's why uh, all countries, as far as I know, call whatever horrendous acts they're carrying out counterterrorism. We happen to call it counterinsurgency or low-intensity conflict. So that's a serious problem. You can't use the actual definitions. You've got to carefully find a definition that doesn't have all the wrong consequences. There are some other problems. Uh, some of them came up in December 1987 at the peak of the first war on terrorism. That's when Fuhrer over the plague was peaking. And uh, the United Nations General Assembly passed a very strong resolution against terrorism, condemning the plague in the strongest terms, calling on every state to fight against it in every possible way. I passed unanimously. One country, Honduras, abstained. Two votes against the usual two, United States and Israel. Why should the United States and Israel vote against a major resolution condemning terrorism in the strongest terms? In fact, pretty much the terms that the Reagan uh, administration was using. Well, there's a reason. There was one paragraph in that long resolution which said that nothing in this resolution infringes on the rights of people struggling against racist and colonialist regimes or foreign military occupation to continue their resistance with the assistance of others, other states, states outside, and their just cause. Well, the United States and Israel can't accept that. The main reason that they couldn't at the time was because of South Africa. South Africa was officially called an ally. There was a terrorist force in South Africa. It was called the African National Congress. They were a terrorist force, officially. South Africa, in contrast, was an ally. And uh, we certainly couldn't support actions by a terrorist group uh, struggling against a racist uh, regime. That would be impossible. And, of course, there's another one, uh, namely the Israeli-occupied territories, and now going into its 35th year, supported primarily by the United States, been blocking a diplomatic settlement for 30 years now, still is, and you can't have that. There was another one at the time, Israel was occupying southern Lebanon and uh, was being combated by what the U.S. calls a terrorist force, Hezbollah, which in fact succeeded in driving Israel out of Lebanon. And you can't have a, allow uh, anyone to struggle against a uh, military occupation when it's one that we support. So therefore, the U.S. and Israel had to vote against the major U.N. resolution on terrorism. And I mentioned before that a U.S. vote against is essentially a veto, which is only half the story. It also vetoes it from history. So none of this was ever reported, and none of it appears in the annals of terrorism. You look at the scholarly work on terrorism and so on, nothing that I've just mentioned appears. The reason is it's got the wrong people holding the guns. You have to carefully hone the definitions and the scholarship and so on so that you come out with the right conclusions. Otherwise, it's not respectable scholarship and honorable journalism. These are some of the problems that are hampering the effort to develop a comprehensive treaty against terrorism.
turn to the question of the historic event that took place in September 11th. And as I said, I think that's uh, correct. It was a historic event, not unfortunately because of its scale. Unpleasant to think about, but in terms of the scale, it's not that unusual. I did say it's probably the worst instant human toll of any crime, and that may be true. But there are terrorist crimes with effects a bit more drawn out that are much more extreme, unfortunately. Nevertheless, it's a historic event because there was a change. The change was the direction in which the guns were pointing. That's new, radically new. So it takes a U.S. history. The last time that the national territory of the United States was under attack, or for that matter, even threatened, uh, was when the British burned down Washington in 1814. It was common to bring up Pearl Harbor, but that's not a good analogy. The Japanese bombed military bases in two U.S. colonies, not the national territory, colonies which had been taken from their inhabitants in not a very pretty way. This is the national territory that's been attacked on a large scale. You can find a few fringe examples, but this is unique. Uh, During these close to 200 years, the United States expelled or mostly exterminated the indigenous population, many million people, conquered half of Mexico, carried out depredation over um, the region, Central America, and sometimes beyond, conquered Hawaii and the Philippines, killing several hundred thousand Filipinos in the process. Since the Second World War, it's extended its reach around the world in ways I don't have to describe, but it was always killing someone else. The fighting was somewhere else. It was others who were getting slaughtered, not here, not the national territory. In the case of Europe, the change is even more dramatic because its history is even more horrendous than ours. We are an offshoot of of Europe, basically. For hundreds of years, Europe has been casually slaughtering people all over the world. That's how they conquered the world, not by handing out candy to babies. During uh, this period, Europe did suffer murderous wars, But that was uh, European killers murdering one another. The main sport of Europe for hundreds of years was slaughtering one another. Uh, The only reason it came to an end in 1945 had nothing to do with democracies not making war on each other and other fashionable notions. It had to do with the fact that everyone understood that the next time they play the game, it's going to be the end for the world uh, because the Europeans, including us, had developed such massive weapons of destruction that that game just has to be over. And it goes back hundreds of years. I mean, in the 17th century, about, you know, probably 40% of the population of Germany was wiped out in one war. But during this whole bloody murderous period, it was Europeans slaughtering each other and Europeans slaughtering people elsewhere. The Congo didn't attack Belgium. India didn't attack England. You know, Algeria didn't attack France. It's uniform. There are, again, small exceptions but pretty small in scale, certainly invisible on the scale of what Europe and us were doing to the rest of the world. This is the first change, the first time that the guns have been pointed the other way. In my opinion, that's probably why you see such different reactions on the two sides of the Irish Sea, which I've noticed, incidentally, in many interviews on both sides. The world looks very different depending um, whether you're holding the lash or whether you're being whipped by it for hundreds of years. Very different. 
And so I think the shock and surprise in Europe and its offshoots, like here, is very understandable. It is a historic event, but regrettably not in scale, in something else. And uh, a reason why most of the rest of the world looks at it quite differently. Not that lacking sympathy for the victims of the atrocity or being horrified by them, that's almost uniform, but viewing it from a different perspective, something we might want to understand. What is the war against terrorism? And side question, what's terrorism? The war against terrorism has been described in high places as a struggle against uh, a plague, uh, a cancer, uh, which is uh, spread by barbarians, by depraved opponents of civilization itself. That's a feeling that I share. The words I'm quoting, however, happen to be from 20 years ago. That's President Reagan and his Secretary of State. The Reagan administration came into office 20 years ago declaring that the war against international terrorism would be the core of our foreign policy, describing it in terms of the kind I just mentioned and others. It was the core of our foreign policy. The Reagan administration responded to this plague spread by depraved opponents of civilization itself by creating a, an extraordinary international terrorist network, totally unprecedented in scale, uh, which carried out massive atrocities all over the world, partly nearby, but not only there. I won't run through the record. I, you're all educated people, so I'm sure you learned about it in high school. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'll just mention uh, one case uh, which is totally uncontroversial, so we don't have to argue about it. Uh, by no means the most extreme, but uncontroversial. It's uncontroversial behind international authorities. The International Court of Justice, the World Court, and the uh, UN Security Council. So this one is uncontroversial, at least among people who have some minimal concern for international law, human rights, uh, justice, and other things like that. And uh, now I'll leave you an exercise. You can estimate the size of that category by simply asking how often this uncontroversial case uh, has been mentioned in the commentary of the last month. And it's a particularly relevant one, not only because it's uncontroversial, but because it does offer a precedent as to how a law-abiding state did respond, in fact, to a case of international terrorism, which is uncontroversial and uh, was even more extreme than... uh, Uh, the events of September 11th. I'm talking about the Reagan-U.S. war against Nicaragua, which left tens of thousands of people dead, the country ruined, perhaps beyond recovery. Nicaragua did respond. They didn't respond by setting off bombs in Washington. Uh, They responded by taking it to the world court, presenting a case. They had no problem putting together evidence. The world court accepted their case, ruled in their favor, condemned what it called the unlawful use of force, which is another word for international terrorism by the United States, ordered the United States to uh, terminate the crime and to pay massive reparations. The United States, of course, dismissed the court judgment with total contempt and announced that it would not accept the jurisdiction of the court henceforth. Nicaragua then uh, went to the UN Security Council which uh, considered a resolution calling on all states to observe international law. 
uh, no one was mentioned, but everyone understood. Uh, the United States vetoed the resolution. It now stands as the only state on record which has both been condemned by the World Court for international terrorism and has vetoed uh, the Security Council resolution calling on states to uh, observe international law. Nicaragua then went to the General Assembly, where there's technically no veto, but a negative U.S. vote amounts to a veto. It passed a similar resolution uh, with uh, only the United States, Israel, and El Salvador opposed. The following year, again, this time, the United States could only rally Israel to the cause, so two votes opposed to observing international law. At that point, Nicaragua couldn't do anything lawful. It tried all the measures. They don't work in a world that is ruled by force. This case, I must say, is uncontroversial, but it's by no means the, the most extreme. We gain a lot of insight into our own culture and society and what's happening now uh, by asking how much we know about all this and how much we talk about it, how much you learn about it in school, you know, how much it's all over the front pages. And this is only the beginning. The United States responded to the World Court and the Security Council by immediately escalating the war very quickly. And that was a bipartisan decision, incidentally. The terms of the war were also changed. Uh, for the first time, there were official orders given uh, to the terrorist army uh, to attack what are called soft targets, uh, meaning undefended civilian targets, and to keep away from the Nicaraguan army. They were able to do that because the United States had total control of the air over Nicaragua. The mercenary army was supplied with advanced communication equipment. It wasn't a guerrilla army in the normal sense and could get instructions about the disposition of Nicaraguan army forces so they could attack uh, agricultural collectives, um, health clinics, and so on, soft targets uh, with impunity. Those were the official orders. Now, what was the reaction? It was known, and there was a reaction to it. It, the policy was regarded as sensible by left liberal opinion. So uh, Michael Kinsley, who represents the left in mainstream discussion, wrote an article in which he said that uh, we shouldn't be too quick to criticize this policy, as Human Rights Watch had just done. He said a sensible policy must meet the test of cost-benefit analysis. That is, and I'm quoting now, an analysis of the amount of blood and misery that will be poured in and the likelihood that democracy will emerge at the other end. Uh, democracy, as the U.S. Uh, understands the term, which is graphically illustrated in the surrounding countries. Notice that it's axiomatic that the United States, U.S. elites have the right to conduct the analysis and to pursue the project if it passes their tests. And it did pass their tests. It worked. When Nicaragua finally succumbed to a superpower assault, commentators openly and cheerfully lauded the success of the methods that were adopted and described them accurately. So I'll quote Time magazine just to pick one. Uh, lauded the success of the methods adopted, direct the economy and prosecute a long and deadly proxy war until the exhausted natives overthrow the unwanted government themselves with a cost to us that is minimal and uh, leaving the victims with wrecked bridges, sabotaged power stations and ruined farms and thus providing the U.S. candidate with a winning issue, ending the impoverishment of the people of Nicaragua. The New York Times uh, had a headline saying, Americans united in joy 
uh, at this outcome. Uh, that's the culture in which we live. And it reveals several facts. Uh, one is the fact that terrorism works. It doesn't fail. It works. Violence usually works. That's world history. Secondly, it's a very serious analytic error to say, as is commonly done, that terrorism is a weapon of the weak. Like other means of violence, it's primarily a weapon of the strong, overwhelmingly, in fact. It is held to be a weapon of the weak because the strong also control the doctrinal systems, and their terror doesn't count as terror. Now, that's close to universal. I can't think of an exception, historical exception, even the worst mass murderers viewed the world that way. So take the Nazis. They weren't carrying out terror in occupied Europe. They were protecting the population from the terrorism of the partisans. And like other resistance movements, there was terrorism. The Nazis were carrying out counterterror. Furthermore, the United States essentially agreed with that. After the war, the U.S. Army did extensive studies of uh, Nazi counterterror operations in Europe. First, I should say that the U.S. picked them up and began carrying them out itself, often against the same targets, the former resistance. But the military also studied the Nazi methods, published interesting studies, sometimes critical of them because they were inefficiently carried out. So it's a critical analysis of, you know, they didn't do this right, they didn't do that right. But those methods, uh, with the advice of uh, Wehrmacht officers who were brought over here, became the manuals of counterinsurgency, of counterterror, of low-intensity conflict, as it's called, and are the manuals and are the procedures that are being used. So it's not just that the Nazis did it, it's that it was regarded as the right thing to do by the leaders of Western civilization, that is, us, who then proceeded to do it themselves. Uh, terrorism is not the weapon of the weak. It is the weapon of those who are against us, whoever us happens to be. And if you can find a historical exception to that, I'd be interested in seeing it. That brings us back to the question, what is terrorism? What is terrorism? What is the significance of September 11th on Canada and the world? Over the next few episodes, we will explore these questions. Diverse voices from Canadian civil society will debate the Canadian and international context for appreciating the political and legal ramifications of the war on terrorism. However, this war and the specter of terrorism certainly predates September 11th, 2001. The war on terrorism and the substantial legal and political changes being wrought on the balance between civil rights and security concerns in countries around the world can only be understood in a peculiarly international context. On the 27th of February, 2001, the President of the United States, George W. Bush, announced the explicit intent to pursue and fund American internationalism when he presented his first budget address to a joint session of Congress. America has a window of opportunity to extend and secure our present peace by promoting a distinctly American internationalism. We will work with our allies and friends to be a force for good and a champion of freedom. We'll work for free markets, free trade, and freedom from oppression. Nations making progress toward freedom will find America is their friend.
We'll promote our values. We'll promote the peace. And we need a strong military to keep the peace. But our military was shaped to confront the challenges of the past. So I've asked the Secretary of Defense to review America's armed forces and prepare to transform them to meet emerging threats. My budget makes a down payment on the research and development that will be required. Yet in our broader transformation effort, we must put strategy first, then spending. Our defense vision will drive our defense budget, not the other way around. Our nation also needs a clear strategy to confront the threats of the 21st century, threats that are more widespread and less certain. They range from terrorists to threatened with bombs to tyrants and rogue nations intent upon developing weapons of mass destruction. To protect our own people, our allies and friends, we must develop and we must deploy effective missile defenses. And as we transform our military, we can discard Cold War relics and reduce our own nuclear forces to reflect today's needs. A, st a strong America is the world's best hope for peace and freedom. Yet the cause of freedom rests on more than our ability to defend ourselves and our allies. Freedom is exported every day as we ship goods and products that improve the lives of millions of people. Free trade brings greater political and personal freedom. Each of the previous five presidents has had the ability to negotiate far-reaching trade agreements. Tonight I ask you to give me the strong hand of Presidential Trade Promotion Authority and to do so quickly. As we meet tonight, many citizens are struggling with the high cost of energy. We have a serious energy problem that demands a national energy policy. On the 27th of February, 2001, the President of the United States, George W. Bush, announced the explicit intent to pursue and fund American internationalism when he presented his first budget address to a joint session of Congress. terrorism has been avowed by the Canadian government. Speaking before the House of Commons Standing Committee on Justice and Human Rights, considering Bill C-36 last fall, the former Minister of Justice Anne McClellan affirmed that, I quote, 
This is war on evil and terror. Over the next few weeks, we will consider Canada's response to terror, especially Bill C-36, the new Anti-Terrorism Act, which has become Canadian law as of December 24th, 2001. While the Act does not define evil, it does provide measures designed to identify, prevent, and prosecute terrorists and those who facilitate their activities. It provides for new investigative tools for law enforcement and national security agencies and provides broad new definitions of terrorist activities and terrorist groups. This has been part one, Terrorism, a kind of background, of the documentary series Terrorism, Law and Democracy, which explores the theme of terrorism and the rule of law through international and Canadian reactions to the terrorist crimes of September 11, 2001, as well as the ongoing international campaign against terror. I was Khalid and this has been a long-term memory radio presentation from CKUT 90.3 FM, the people's power station in Mount Real. Join us next time for part two, a consideration of Canadian national security history.